It's now time to go around the nation in Division Three football. And here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. Thanks, Dave. When we reconvene next month, we'll really be able to say we're in the 2016 preseason, but uh, we're pretty close to that already as we deliver you the Around the Nation podcast for June 2016. I'm Pat Coleman, joined by Keith McMillan. And, uh, you know, Keith, even though we're not, maybe you and I aren't in the preseason yet, or, you know, I don't know, maybe you are. I I can't speak for you. That doesn't uh, stop the college football magazines from hitting the uh, newsstand in June, maybe even in late May, with some... Uh, maybe off the wall, maybe not so super informed prognostications about the Division Three football season. It's always something that you and I uh, look at, I guess, with a, a little bit of skepticism. But I know in the past, too, you looked back at them at the end of the season with a little bit more, uh, maybe academic rigor isn't quite the right term, but uh, something a little more structured to see how they actually performed. Well, yeah, the crazy, the crazy thing is sometimes the more you know, you know, the less you know because we overthink it or we or we just uh, we analyze the information so much and then, you know, unexpected things happen during the season, which is part of the reason why we enjoy the season so much. But a typical poll would always get about like 10 to 12 or 13 or 14 of the top 25 teams. Right. And then there would be like, you know, nine to, to 11 new teams that flow in. And, you know, the way we do the the preseason poll um, and, and you'll talk a little bit about the poll later in the podcast when you uh, when you interview Washington Lee's coach because he's one of the voters. But um, when we put it together in the preseason, you actually poll every coaching staff uh, or SID and get who's coming back. And it's not just eight starters back on offense, eight on defense. It's four or five offensive linemen, no no quarterbacks, all American running back. So we have this big spreadsheet to go off. And so I actually try to put a lot of time into it. I know. Uh, if I see five of five offensive linemen, I always feel real strong about the offense. Or you see a full unit of uh, defensive linemen and linebackers coming back together, you think the defense is going to be pretty good. You know, I look for things like that. You bold the offensive linemen. So we really crunch a bunch of numbers to put our top 25 together. And I think, you know, if you're putting out a magazine that has a deadline in May, you know, the best you can do, you know, some D3 teams haven't even finished their recruiting yet. Uh, some have, you know, the best you can do if, if you're trying to put together a top 25 in May is kind of rejigger the way everything finished in the playoffs last season. Well, and in fairness, in Division Three lately, sometimes that's a pretty accurate way to go about things, unfortunately. Well, yeah, that's what the numbers bore out when we used to look at look back at it in around the nation, because in D3, the, the fun of it or the the intrigue is always in the conference races and the rivalry games and uh, the first couple rounds of the playoffs. And then, you know, usually we get to the final eight. We've talked about this in earlier podcasts where you kind of have the, the formula for the final eight. It's, it's you know, Mount Union and Whitewater and Mary Harden Baylor and Linfield. And then one team from the MIAC, maybe one from the CCIW. And I don't remember the rest of the formula, but one Wesley. surprise team from the East, maybe. Yeah. And then Wesley or and we- Wesley, right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, it was uh, the usual suspects. I think uh, Gordon Mann actually uh, termed that or came up with that term for us. Well, and he did it a few years ago, and it still holds true. So, you know, there's still intrigue when you have now 249 teams it's going to be this season. There'll be plenty of drama and plenty of surprises and upsets, but uh, it does tend to be the same few at the end. So if you're doing a top 25 now, you know, your best bet, try to get uh, some of those purple teams up in the top five. And you'll end up looking pretty good. I was going to say, you and I have been on the opposite side of this as well. Uh, when you worked for USA Today and then afterwards when I wrote for uh, USA Today some freelance stuff, you and I both did like Division Two preseason rankings, and I did some FCS ones that just were like, you know, I, I feel just as ill-informed about those. I'm kind of working off of 
Well, yeah, Northwest Missouri State. They're pretty good usually, right? In Grand Valley. I've heard of them. And um, yeah, Valdosta. I don't know. Then I'm, then I'm grasping at straws. Yeah, and it's really amazing how much turnover they have. Um, not as much in FCS now that uh, I think North Dakota State's been pretty dominant. And, and in D2, I don't think Grand Valley is quite the dominant force that they were 10 years ago. Right. Um, but they every year, you know, when, when we are in our playoffs, you know, we glance at the other divisions playoffs and they'll have schools either you never heard of or you're like, oh, I didn't even know they were good this year. You know, the year Minnesota Duluth won it, I was like, wow, that, is, that a, is that a dominant football program? Yeah. Um, well, they they have been. I have no idea if they are now. They keep stealing D3 coaches, so they must be pretty good. There you go. <laughs> um, I, yeah, so uh, we, we, we don't talk too much. When we talk with Scott Abel in a, in a little bit, we don't talk too much about you know, the whole process of the preseason poll. But we do, yeah. We go through and uh, I, I go through and I identify probably 50 or 60 schools that we want to solicit information from. And, you know, we try to get as much of that information as we actually can uh, in the offseason. Sometimes that's not as easy to do. Not everybody has a full-time SID 12 months a year. Um, and then, you know, as a voter, I'm looking at that stuff and I'm thinking, uh, okay, I know who my top five or six are. And I more or less know who are the 25 teams I want to include. But I always feel like I've got five, and then I have like six teams that I feel comfortable saying are number ten. But somebody has to be number six on my ballot, and that's always kind of the uh, the I know the wild card or the the toughest decision I have to make is who is it beyond that first uh, tier of teams that are always there. Yeah, and 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 the line moves a little bit sometimes. You know, it can be um, when you you know, even when you're in that second tier of teams where, where like Hobart and Johns Hopkins tend to be pretty dominant within their conference. So the uh, you know Wabash or Wittenberg uh, will always end up in the top 15 somewhere. I think the real intrigue for me sometimes gets you know when you get to like 15 to 25 and you have like 30 schools that you could envision going eight and two, um, and then you really have to dig into the numbers and say all right well who has 11 starters back and who has 19 starters back because that's probably the difference between you know being seven and three and out of the top 25 and being eight and two or nine and one and, and being in it. What I always love is it seems uh, it, it seems it never fails. At one point in every year, there will be somebody who I solicit information from. They will get back to me and say, oh, no, we're not very good this year. Don't consider us. And then they go on and make the playoffs. Yeah. And, you know, and the other thing is the information is not always foolproof. There, there, there have been times where we have all Americans and then, you know, they decide they, they don't want to they don't want to enroll this year or they don't want to play. And and, uh, you know, everything you, you waited your information on. Uh, kind of goes out the window. That is basically preseason prognostications in a nutshell. Um, they are indeed uh, almost worth the paper that you print them on. Please don't print the paper. You know, save a save a tree. That's why we do our stuff online, and we don't send you a, a newspaper every week. Also, because you know we don't want to do newspapers every week. Our guest this month on the podcast, uh, Franklin College head coach Mike Leonard. Uh, he's currently in Mexico, and he still will be. Or at least he's still scheduled to be once uh, this podcast drops on Monday. Uh, he's part of the uh, coaching staff for the World University Games. Uh, we'll also be joined by WNL coach Scott Abel, as well as Lawrence University head coach Rob McCarthy and offensive coordinator Mark Speckman. Uh, each of those uh, programs has different challenges, and we'll uh, talk about a couple common themes across them. 
uh, about those as uh, we welcome them in coming up in just a couple of minutes. But I'd also like to take this time to remind you that the Around the Nation podcast is currently brought to you by nobody, just you know, me and Keith. Uh, you could be reaching an audience full of decision makers in Division Three football, coaches who need new equipment, who can uh, influence decisions on uh, replacing turf, scoreboards, jumbotrons, all sorts of things, just by sponsoring the Around the Nation podcast. Keith and I, uh, right now, we would be waxing poetic about your product right before we go to break. Uh, and if you uh, think about it, or if you're a coach who has a connection with somebody who uh, might be uh, interested in doing something like that, think about it. Drop me an email at pat.coleman at d3sports.com. We're back on the Around the Nation podcast for June 2016 and uh, now joined by Franklin College head coach Mike Leonard, who is in Mexico with the World University American Football Championship uh, team, the U.S. team, which I looked through has about uh, maybe eight to ten Division three players on it and um, coached uh, by Kirk Talley, the head coach at uh, Northwestern University. Yes, the D3 version. Um, but uh, talking with Mike Leonard and, and coach, uh, first of all, um, how's Mexico? How's it going? Oh, it is going great down here, Pat. Um, honored to be a part of this this USA team, as we're called, sponsored by Athletes in Action. And we're playing in what was supposed to be a six-country international football tournament. Uh, India had to pull out. So we have uh, five teams represented down here, that being Mexico, uh, China, Guatemala, uh, Japan, and obviously the USA. And I see that uh, a couple of games in the books already, uh, USA winning dramatically over Japan uh, a couple of days ago. By the time that uh, this podcast uh, appears on our site, uh, the uh, USA team will already have played another game um, and I, you know, we won't have the results of that for this. But uh, you know, tell us a little bit about the the format of the tournament. Obviously, you said it's five teams, so it's a little bit of a uh, not maybe a, a standard bracket. How does it set up? It's set up now with uh, Indy having pulled out at the last second. First, the Mexican administrators have to scramble at the last second, but it basically every team is playing every other team once. So we're playing a total of four games in a grand total of eight days, which is unheard of. But, uh, you know, uh, we had a great win against hand, like you said, dramatic fashion, and then two days prior to that, we played China, and China, it, they've only been playing American football now for the last um, six or seven years, so they're they're in their infancy, and Guatemala is kind of in the same boat, so uh, it, it, was a, it was a lopsided game, and matter of fact, we just finished a practice about an hour ago where both the Chinese and the Guatemalans joined our practice. And uh, no slam on them at all, but it was it was like having uh, you know high school teams or even even junior high teams to a degree uh, uh, come out and watch and be a part of a practice like when D three teams hosts uh, teams to come out and watch their practice and it was great watching our guys you know teach fundamentals of the game uh, to each of these positions during the individual period. So, but to answer your question, it's it's a four game tournament with everybody playing each other in a rant robin fashion. I look at the roster and I see guys from McMurray, Eureka, Hendricks, uh, North Carolina Wesleyan, Becker, Howard Payne, Crown, Fitchburg State, DePauw, and then uh, uh, one player each from Mount Union and U UW Whitewater. How did uh, how the roster get selected? How did kids get onto the team? There are a couple of rep 
representatives from Athletes in Action located in Vigne, Ohio. It was their job from last November, basically, uh, to start recruiting and asking guys if they wanted to be a part of USA Team. And it's, it was just a thing where every guy had to fundraise for. This is basically a mission trip. The, the number one focus is not necessarily winning the gold medal, even though as competitors, that's what we want to do. We want to play the very best we possibly can. They play, play the very best we possibly can, but uh, there's a bigger mission here being with Athletes in Action, uh, great Christian organization. So it's a, it's a win-win. This is just one of the closest teams that I've ever been a part of. No slam to the Franklin Grizzlies that are listening, but uh, we had a training camp in Xenia for five days here with this, with this team that's been assembled from guys all over the country, from D3 players to D2 players to a couple D1 players, NAIA players. And it's just very, very special to see how that we've grown together in a very short period of time. Yeah, what's it like taking a team that's, uh, you know, got so much of a variety in terms of collegiate experience and trying to mold them together into, a, into something like this in basically a week? Yeah, it, it's it's a bigger challenge than we have back, uh, you know, with our own teams. That's for sure. These guys didn't know each other at all, and so, you know, a lot of our focus was not necessarily on X's and O's, even though that was important to get terminology taught quick. And you know, I, I was I was kind of told that uh, at the last second, the coach having to bow out, that you know, hey, I, I'm going to be the offensive coordinator. And so I had to start putting together something about five days before training, and just trying to think. You know, how can I make this as easy to understand as possible uh, for everybody and, and still be able to execute and get some very good competition over here? Mexico is a phenomenal-looking football team. And what's neat, we're all walking through, the, we're all staying in the same dormitory down here. It's kind of a, a global remember the Titans, if you will, yeah. and, that, and that we're all forced to live together. And it's, it's amazing that, to see guys from different countries talking in the lobby, sharing, and and, and they start realizing that, hey, these guys aren't so bad after all, even though that, you know, as you watch politics uh, uh, unfold, country versus country, but hey, the, the, the language of football and the beauty of the game is bringing people together in a great way down here. But the challenges of team building are, are definitely uh, strong on the list of, of getting a team to play together. But I think we're there. We're there as the United States. The uh, I know that this was played a couple of years ago, I think in Sweden, if I remember correctly. Um, so it, it seems like this is a, an event that might have some legs that might continue to go on. So um, for people who might be considering it or might be invited to play the next time down the road, it sounds like something you would definitely encourage that they consider? Very much so. Uh, the next series of games will be in, in Beijing, just north of Beijing, I think, away over there in China. Uh, in 2018, so I know that the administrators here are already starting to plan, uh, excited about the possibilities uh, of, of making sure that the U.S. takes a, a team again, and uh, it's just neat to see football growing on a global scale. These these players that are from Guatemala and the other countries, they just think that we're rock stars, and uh, we, we're trying to be, and, and we are, as humble as possible in teaching them the game, and and uh, we've got a lot to learn ourselves. That's what I'm trying to, to show everybody. That, I mean, they, and they played an unbelievable game versus us, and we were very fortunate to win on a last-second field goal. But uh, football is around the world, and it's, it's exciting to see. Let me ask about Franklin for a little bit as we uh, kind of look forward into the 2016 season. Um, the non-conference schedule shakes up a little bit. Um, you know, you uh, make a switch out for um, – 
Um, uh, Illinois Wesleyan drops off the schedule. Thomas Moore comes on, that sort of thing. So that's one of those games. And then the other, you know, question is, um, you know, you guys continue to play Butler, and that's I think one of the things that we always wonder about is what do you, as a D three coach, feel that you guys get out of playing Butler because you know it doesn't count towards playoff selection. It doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't do much on that standpoint. Are you guys having trouble finding a, a tenth game, or is that just something that's kind of grown into a, a rivalry, or why is that? I guess, why is that game on the schedule? Right. Uh, back in back in the day, 30, 40 years ago, Franklin used to be in the same conference as Butler, and many of our alums uh, that are older now, they, they, they like to see that kind of game. I like the game because we're close. I like the game because, uh, you know, 20 miles away, we can take our entire team on a road for, for limited cost to the budget. Everybody feels like they're a part of it in a night game. Uh, Butler is Division One, even though they're non-scholarship. They're Division One, so that when Franklin does knock them off, uh, you know it's big news around the country. I remember my folks who live in Florida uh, when we knocked off Butler a few years back. They were telling me that hey, in the sport sports page of the Bradenton newspaper, it, it says Franklin beats Division One Butler. You know, little things like that. Uh, to me. The non-conference schedule, I want it to be as tough as possible. I want to have as much adversity uh, on our in our team as we can so that when we hit the Heartland Conference for the remaining eight games, uh, we kind of know what our team's made of through thick and thin. And uh, we, we know pretty much, uh, based on history, that if we are going to go to the playoffs, we have to win the Heartland Conference anyway. So to be the non-conference schedule is a, is a tune-up for getting ready for the Heartland. And you guys, of course, uh, we've talked about it quite a bit on the podcast over the last few years. You know, at times you've played Whitewater, then you've uh, you've played Mountain Union as well. Um, but you guys really have kind of taken your lumps in in non-conference. Even um, you know, even last year losing to Illinois Wesleyan, uh, which uh, and previously losing to teams that have maybe not necessarily been on the same caliber as the Whitewaters and the Mountain Unions. Does it um, you know? But it sounds like you are committed to continuing to. To continuing to schedule that way going forward? Well, at least for the next uh, two or three, four years, yes. Uh, and, and sometimes it's it's just, hey, who is available at the time when you're making out your future schedules? You don't want to be left out in the cold. And, uh, you know, some teams like to play and some teams won't play. Some teams are really leery about, you know, possibly getting a loss in the non-conference, which might affect their playoffs. And I, and I just don't look at it that way. Uh, the way the way we're structured in the Heartland uh, right now, so um, yeah, that's just my my mindset and our mindset as a program. What we've kind of instilled in our coaches and in our players how we're going to attack the, the training camp and the non-conference schedule. What do you guys have coming back next year? I see, uh, you know, obviously Chase Burton was a sophomore, so expect to see him back. Your top running backs returning, uh, maybe a little bit younger in the receiving core, but it looks like the offensive side of the ball should be as good as always. Yes, I'm very excited about having a returning quarterback in a year that you, especially one that's played extremely well. So Chase Burton is his name, and uh, with two years left with him, we're we're excited about that. Uh, we've had some changes in the coaching staff. Uh, uh, a, a coach has been with me for 13 years, Matt Theobald, who was our offensive coordinator, is now the head coach at both of our alma maters, Hanover, uh, which is our rival that we play in the last game of the season. That's so, right. You know, he was able to take. He was able to take a couple of coaches with him and give them uh, elevations in responsibility and things. So 
we kind of revamped our offensive coaching and and spring ball went real well with with the transition. And uh, then defensively is where we have most of our starters coming back uh, between the two sides of the ball. So no changes on defense. Um, and uh, just looking forward to seeing how we mesh together. I know uh, listeners probably heard uh, I'm, I have another call coming in. I, I think we're going to have to uh, – we'll, we'll, we'll have to ignore that one for now. Uh, we are not uh, using the uh, magical uh, – wonderful experience uh, of technology for Skype uh, just uh, trying to get Mike on the on the phone here from uh, Mexico Mike could have been enough of a challenge in all honesty I'm just happy that you're uh, that you're able to join us sometimes it's a little bit hard to get uh, a international calling plan or something like that well in Monterey Mexico right now which is in central Mexico and we have been treated in the kindest of way by the Mexican people they're putting on a great production down here Anybody listening, uh, yeah, tune into the the games. Our our final game will be against a very physical, tough Mexico team. They're 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 put together in a great way, so it should be a, a great great matchup on Wednesday night at seven o'clock Eastern time in the state. Yeah, and after I remember in uh, from the past, Japan and Mexico have always put together uh, pretty good American football teams for these events. Um, let me ask you about. Uh, let me go back to the. Uh, to losing some of your coaches to your arch rival, I I know that you you said obviously that is your alma mater, um, but uh, you know that is a program that's you know was a really uh, strong program in the Heartland Conference and in the ICAC before uh, before that back you know when we first started the site back in ninety nine two thousand two thousand two etc. But you know the Grizzlies have, uh, Grizzlies have really taken the uh, by far head and shoulders in this rivalry and the Panthers have kind of fallen back you as a but just speaking as a guy as a as a Franklin guy and as a Heartland Conference guy would it be good for the conference would it be good for the rivalry if if uh if coach Theobald and the rest of them were able to kind of revive that Hanover program a bit no that's a that's an of course and uh so excited for him and his first coaching job and he will do a tremendous job the whole staff is a tremendous bunch of guys that uh, we've coached with for the most part. That ninety percent of their coaches are, you know, have been a part of our program at Franklin, and they will do a great job. And I wish them the greatest of luck for three hundred and sixty-four days and twenty-one hours out of that that year. Um, you know, I hope they go nine and one every year, and, and it'll just it'll just make the conference that that much stronger. Obviously, having another another solid team to compete with. Typically, over the course of the past couple of podcasts, I've been asking coaches about spring practice. Obviously, that's uh, pretty far in the past now. So I think uh, starting this month, maybe we start looking ahead to training camp. So, you know, how many guys are you expecting to come out to training camp? When does camp open? And, and what is, uh, you know, what are the focuses for you guys uh, this year when August comes around? Sure. We have, uh, as of this moment, 136 guys ready to come to training camp on Saturday, August 13th, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I don't have the calendar in front of me, but it's that Saturday. We have our freshman report a day early, and it's pretty much move into the dorm rooms for them, and then we turn over the program as football coaches to about eight faculty members who really impress upon them for the next 24 hours in, in kind of small group settings the importance of the reason why they are at uh, a liberal arts college like Franklin that it, it truly is about being a student first and, and an athlete and I like the way that's set up and then the next day our veterans show up and and uh, 
first first night, the seniors will serve dinner to everybody else, and uh, the team building begins uh, that night, along with all the equipment handout, and then obviously some kind of conditioning test uh, to make sure that everybody has worked hard over the summer, and then getting all the terminology, all the lingo of of our football taught to the freshmen, and uh, and it's just you know everybody working together. Uh, the, the teams that do well are the ones where the, the upperclassmen are helping the freshmen and making them feel welcome as opposed to, you know, uh, you know, challenging for positions right away and, and so protective that, hey, who's this freshman coming in trying to take my spot? It's, it's the attitude of the program that I think that gets uh, taught during training camp. It's the most important thing. With 136 kids, I obviously that's not the that's not the largest program in Division Three by a, a little bit, but you know that's a significant number of kids. It's a little bit more than average, and sometimes people who, you know, come at uh, come at Division Three from uh, solely a high school perspective or a D1 perspective don't understand what it's like to have that many kids in the program. How do you, you know, as uh, as a coaching staff, try to figure out where those kids belong and how you slot them in in the course of a three-week training camp? Sure, it takes a while, that's for sure, but every guy will understand from moment number one on our team that everybody's going to have a role, and, and our upperclassmen will, through stories, be sharing that throughout training camp on how the role has changed from freshman to sophomore to junior to senior. But, uh, you know, the cream will rise to the top. Guys will figure out who is who are the athletes and who are the guys that pick things up the, the quickest uh, from a terminology standpoint, the guys that don't uh, that don't let nagging um, aches and pains keep them off the field. The difference between you know injury and being hurt. Uh, everybody hurts at times. Not everybody's injured. And so the the uh, luckily we have that many. We cut quality death. Um, my my biggest satisfaction every year is uh, last year we started the program with 134 guys. And 15 weeks later, on our roster, we had 129 guys. So very little uh, attrition. Uh, we actually have a retention problem with too many being retained, but we like it that way. I'd rather have way too much than, than not enough. As we welcome back in Keith McMillan, uh, Mike Leonard certainly has an interesting preseason camp coming up, uh, not only in terms of the roster management, but also that new coaching staff. Yeah, I mean, I thought that interview with Mike was just a great example of how, for some of us, we might check out after the Stag Bowl and, and check back in when kickoff comes out and just have a you know five-month football season. But he's 24-7 around the clock coaching um, you know, an all-star team in, in Monterey, Mexico, and, and then uh, recruiting and scheduling and all that stuff. But I, you know, the amazing thing really is, yeah, losing that, that coaching staff, a good chunk of it, um, and, and losing it somewhere where I thought it's just attitude, losing it to the rival, but also his alma mater. Um, you know, sometimes as you get in that rivalry, you, you know, you root against them on game day, but you um, but you want them to do well because it brings the rivalry up. It brings both schools up. You know, I, I know from from being part of the Randolph Macon Hampton Sydney thing that it's, um, you know, it's part of what you recruit on. It's part of what you you kind of live live by as a player. You know, even if you have a, a disappointing season, you win the last game, you, you know, you feel a lot better about it. And it's true at, you know, Union and RPI and DePaul and Wabash and Amherst and Williams and all these other places. Um, so, so yeah, you know, replacing a coaching staff is is a, a, a real big offensive, a real big challenge. 
I think for uh, for the whole for the staff. And so he, now he's not just bringing in you know new players and, and freshmen, but also bringing in uh, new coaches. And then you know we'll be waiting ten. 11 weeks into the season to get a chance to see what uh, how they're doing at Hanover. And uh, interesting stuff he was talking about early on. And we've seen, you know, in the past that teams full of D2, D3 guys, maybe some FCS guys and, uh, and NAIA guys go play in these international showcases. And even with only a few days of preparation or, you know, working a playbook together, uh, they're able to do pretty well. Yeah, I mean, you know, we sometimes take for granted how good – we are at American football, um, you know, just b- because between here and, and Canada, it is sort of life in the in the fall or, you know, late summer all the way to, to the winter, really. And in a lot of places it's not, but they but they've seen the sport on on TV and they see how, um, you know, it, it's just got all the all the reasons to, to appeal to you. It's got power. It's got speed. It's got a place for big guys and small guys, and you have to think your way through it. Um, I think it's it's an appealing game even for those who aren't exposed to it. And I think, um, you know, the way it's growing internationally is proof of that. We talked about it a couple podcasts ago with Griffin Neal, who got a chance to go over and, and play in Germany. And then, you know, now you talk about these international games where you're playing Guatemala, China, Japan, um, Mexico, you know, and you, and you have uh, India was was supposed to be in the tournament as well. So um, American football is is um, it's growing, but there's it's just impossible, I think, for for those of us for other countries who are just getting into it in the past few years to to kind of be up with college level players here, uh, you know, in the United States. And I remember, you know, this is not quite a, a direct comparison, but I remember after playing D three, uh, playing semi pro football. And it just was, by comparison, uh, disorganized. The the schemes were simplistic. I remember um, there was a playoff game. You know, we didn't all like even ride the bus together. So there was a playoff game, and the quarterback was running late, and the backup quarterback was riding with the quarterback. And I guess I they, I told them I'd play quarter, quarterback in high school. I was going to start the playoff game until about 15 minutes before the game, and then they moved me back to my regular position. But, I mean, it, it's just such a big difference between – um, but, but, you know, or, or maybe the better way to put it is, you know, D3 football is really good football. You're playing complex, complicated schemes. You know, the guys aren't as big and tough as, as, um, or maybe they are as tough, but not as big and fast as, as, uh, division one or the guys we grow accustomed to watching in the NFL on Sundays. But, um, but it's really good football. And sometimes it takes those international trips, uh, for, for teams to realize it. You heard Mike Leonard say, you know, that they're being treated like rock stars, down there in Monterey. Uh, if you ever have any questions or any thoughts about how uh, you know how organized Division Three football is, I would go and look up the story that uh, hit uh, recently, where uh, uh, the Baltimore Ravens John Urschel is doing that PhD program at MIT, working out with the MIT team, and how impressed he was. And yet, that is uh, about all you need to uh, all you need to understand. Yeah, I mean the other thing too that that. I must told the, you know tell the story all the time, and I think a lot of D three players can relate. Is that um, you have your career or your your academic goals and your football goals, and you just have to be able to do more than one thing at once. And when you get out here and in, into life, you know you have a job, you have a family and kids, things you got to worry about, and you know maybe some other kind of like for me at this this spring, I was coaching my daughter's softball team. So there's all these. You just have to be able to juggle 
juggle multiple balls. And as you do, as you go through D3 football, it does kind of prepare you for that because, you know, you may be coming straight from class to practice or straight from practice to class. Um, and then you have activities. And if you're on a small campus, you may be involved in some other things as well. So it really does kind of lend itself to, um, to, to success later in life. Back on the Around the Nation podcast and joined by Washington and Lee head coach Scott Abel. Uh, coach, uh, first of all, congratulations on a, uh, on a great season last year. I know, uh, you know, obviously some of that is, is pretty far back now, but uh, it was a huge turnaround, I think better than even the most optimistic of Generals fans or alumni could have predicted, going from 2-8 and eight in 2014 to 10-1 last season. Uh, as you look back on it, what, what triggered it? What, did, uh, you know, what was the thing that, made, that you saw that made you think that you guys could do that? Well, you know, I, I think as you look back, um, I think the thing that really jumps out at those who were close to the program and watched is that we probably really weren't a two and eight team in uh, in 2014. You know, uh, um, we were probably a little closer to success than our record indicated, and uh, you know, it, it, that happens with a young football team, which we were in 2014. We were young, we were inexperienced, we were dealing with some, some key injuries and um you know when when it's all said and done it, it looks like a two and eight season but um even then you know we we had plenty plenty opportunities to to be a better team that year and just quite couldn't put it together so you know uh, when 2015 rolled around we were optimistic um now i'd be lying to, to i'd be lying to you if i said that uh hey we thought we were a 10 and 0 team a 10 and 1 when it was all said and done after playoffs but um, I, I thought we had a shot to be a good football team. I thought we had a shot to really turn things uh, back in, in, in the positive direction. So um, I wasn't surprised that, that we were successful. I was probably surprised at maybe the level of success we had. You know, as it, as it, went, as it went along last year, um, you guys get into the playoffs, and obviously, you know, uh, the season ends in kind of a tough manner, losing in the first round to Thomas Moore. Uh, obviously, a learning experience for those kids as well. But what's the gap between a program like WNL and then those that have, you know, gotten to the second round and maybe even further in the past, like Thomas Moore, who you played at the end of the season last year, or uh, Johns Hopkins, who you open up with in the fall? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I, you know, I think the first thing probably is just a level of confidence. You know, um, you know, when you're able to continue to play at that level, you you, you continually um, have a shot to win a playoff game, or you win one yearly. You know, your your program plays with a sense of confidence and a sense of expectation to to be that caliber. So, I think that's one of the biggest things. Uh, and then, you know, when when you look at Thomas More, um, you know, there's some areas that certainly jump off the paper at you uh, when it was all said and done. You know, um. Uh, you know, we, we were just outmatched in a few areas. And, uh, um, you know, they, they were big physical up front. Um, and, uh, you know, that, it was a tough matchup for, especially for our defensive line, which last year averaged about 215. You know, um, yeah. going in up against an offensive line that averaged, uh, you know, right at 300 in the playoffs. And, um, you know, it, it, it's so often when you get to that level, it, it, it turns into matchups. And, uh, you know, for, for a team that still we were fairly young last year, it, it wasn't a great matchup. But, you know, we also didn't play our, our, our best football. We didn't play the football we had played uh, throughout the year. We, we played a little tight. We, we played a little nervous, which comes back to point one. You, you got to get some confidence and, uh, 
you know, and really the only way to do that is to, to get in that ring more often. You guys, at the very least, uh, obviously, you know, not that uh, we here have the luxury of projecting a team forward to the playoffs, and you guys have, you know, three weeks of preseason and a ton of offseason and uh, 10 regular season games to get through before you get any of that talk comes up. But I have to think that at the very least, uh, upgrading to uh, playing Johns Hopkins in the season opener, uh, adding a team such as Claremont Mud Scripps as opposed to a non-Division three opponent has to feel like you guys, your players would be a little bit more prepared if you guys are fortunate enough to get to the postseason this time around. Well, you know, that's, that's really what, what you hope. You, you know, you hope that, that, that playing some, some early um, non-conference games uh, that are really going to test you, are, are the first thing you hope is just going to prepare you for your conference play. Um, uh, but you know, kind of what I re- you know what I reiterated at the end of uh, the uh, previous question, you have to be, get in that ring more often, and you have to feel that that pressure uh, be put to the test. And that's certainly what a John Hopkins is going to do to us early in the season in a Claremont. So, um, you know, we're excited about those opportunities. We're excited for those challenges. So Claremont's coming to your place. Uh, that's really an interesting matchup. That they're coming all the way across the country to do that. How did uh, how does how does a, a matchup like that come about? <laughs> uh, well, that's a good question. Um, I would tell you the first answer is the scheduling difficulties. You know, uh, uh, when we began to try to schedule some games a few years back, um, we were we were having a hard time filling our non-con schedule, as were they. And uh, you know, there's certainly a really uh, top-tier academic school like ourselves. And so I think that matchup is uh, intriguing to both universities, you know, outside of football. Yeah. You know, I think for, for both administrations, I think it's a very attractive matchup. And and so when, when, when it began to uh, get floated around, I, I think the, the right people who really need to get on board to make something happen like this, which is your administration, saw the opportunity and, and have really stepped to the plate for probably both universities. What's it going to cost you guys to go back out there next year? Well, that's a great question. We're, we're actually working on that now. You know, um, you know, I, I can't even put a number to it. Um, you know, we, we've posted some numbers around, but I, I, I wouldn't begin to guess because we're, we're having those meetings as we head into the fall. Um, and, and you never know where, where, you know, with alumni base like WNL, you know, you know, you, you just, uh, the, the big picture of being able to go on the West Coast where we have a strong alumni base, you know, um, that's an attractive thing for our alumni office as well. Yeah, I know uh, at, at places where I've worked in the past, maybe the uh, alumni office or the alumni themselves are, are going to be uh, particularly uh, involved in helping fund that. Um, the uh, So you talked about um, these being two top-tier academic schools, and really WNL is uh, the – the, the kind of head and at least head maybe head and shoulders above everybody else in the in the ODAC in terms of uh, of academic standards as well and and I think con- in kind of in conjunction with that you guys tend to have one of the smaller rosters in the conference as well what's it like trying to recruit to a, a school like WNL and then competing in that area with a, a bunch of schools that uh, you know don't necessarily have uh, the same kind of students they have to draw from well you know I think for um I think for each of us, we all have our own challenges in recruiting, you know, and uh, I, I don't begin to predict that one man's challenge is tougher than the other. So, you know, for us, our, our challenge is certainly, you know, um, finding the right student athlete that fits first our academic model for our university and then 
finding a, a football player that, that fits our model for our program. And, uh, you know, um, that's not, that's not always easy, but at the, at the same, the same hand here, we're, we're a national recognized academic institution. So that, that certainly helps us recruiting nationally. You know, I mean, we're, 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 we're recruiting yearly in Florida. We're recruiting yearly in Texas and, you know, uh, we're, we're setting foot in about every state, um, you know, east of uh, east of, of the Mississippi and up and down the eastern seaboard. I mean, and so for a program our size, um, you know, that that that's really unusual that that you're able to get coaches in all these states and you're able to to really network. And once again, that really comes back to our alumni base. That that you know um, that makes I think WNL such a special um, product for a strong student athlete who who wants to continue. Um, their football career, but at the same time wants to get a top-level education. How many kids are you expecting when uh, camp opens up in August? Yeah, you know, we're, we're expecting probably our biggest number we've had, at least in my um, in my time here at WNL. I think we'll probably have somewhere around 83 kids um, report for camp, uh, which is a great number for us. Um, and, uh, you know, we're excited of that, with really 20, 26 or 27 of those being uh, – first-year players, um, which is a big number for us as well. So, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're real excited. And, uh, you know, um, right now we're our, our staff is, uh, you know, we're, we're continuing to, to, to recruit for, for 2017, which is great. You know, uh, we've been we've been done with our 2016 recruiting since January. So um, that also helps us is that we're able to really try, you know, get a class in a little earlier than most Division three schools because, the academic part of the, the side of what works for us. And, uh, you know, so, you know, it, it is a, it's a, to me, it's a very special opportunity to recruit for WNL. You mentioned earlier uh, last year's team was pretty young, and as I look uh, up and down the offense, at least in terms of uh, uh, the skill position players, uh, basically, as far as I can tell, all of those guys are back, and I know you have some key offensive linemen back. That has to be a that has to be a key for you guys going into the season, knowing that you have those guys who all understand the system and have played in it. Well, w- without question, I mean, it, you know, for us, well, what we do is so unique offensively, and uh, you know, it sometimes takes kids a, a couple years to to really learn the, the ins and outs of our offense, so we can execute at a high level like we did last year, and uh, you know. For the most part, those guys were all all juniors and sophomores last year. So we're we're returning a a, a lot of offensive yards, a lot of offensive production. Uh, we're returning three full time starters up front um, with two kids who got numerous starts because of injury. So in theory, you know we're returning eleven starters on offense somehow, some way. Uh, now, you know probably only eight full time starters. You know, eight kids who started ten games or more. Um, eight is still significant. Eight is still a good number. Start. That's okay. Eight is still a good number. That's all I was going to say. Oh yeah, well, eight, eight's a great number. And you, and when you start looking at it, you you know, we're, uh, backup quarterback Matt Scro, who who had two terrific starts for us and played in, he may have played in all 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 ten of the regular season games possibly. Um, uh, a number of running backs who got significant playing time, but maybe weren't listed as a starter. I mean, we we had so many uh, so many rushing records that we broke last year, but yet we didn't have a we didn't have a 900 yard rusher. Yeah, you know, so a lot of guys with life experience. But you know, something we've been preaching all off season, we, you know, with 
with expectation comes responsibility. And uh, that's what we're going to have to learn to play with. You know, last year's team had the luxury of coming in with no expectation, being fifth or sixth in the conference. Um, you know, this year's team will be different. There will be expectations. And uh, our guys are going to have to learn to work with that responsibility to prepare for that season and then learn to play with that responsibility. Uh, defensively on that side of the ball, a few more seniors last year, especially at uh, linebacker. How's the defensive side shaping up for 2016? Well, we, we returned a lot of good players there as well. But, yeah, we, we, did, we, we lost a few two kids in our front, our front seven that, that we know will be tough to replace. You know, Patrick Wright, uh, you know, Moody Hurd and Christian Cranford, those guys. Um, but we still return a good nucleus of, of talent and kids who've got a great deal of playing experience. And when you look really at our back seven, you know, we, we really only graduated one kid, which is the Cranford kid, because the Herd kid played more of our boundary backer, which really played as a thought technique most of the year. Um, so when you look at your back seven, we returned six of those kids. Um, and and uh, we feel really good about the back half. I, you know, I, I'd say our, our back half of our defense is as good as anybody will play all year. You know, when you talk about our secondary kids and, uh, um, you know, our, our linebackers who drop and have to play the run in the pass. Uh, so we feel great about it. And then up front, you know, you, you got a kid like Rhett Delk, who, who was a full-time star last year. That's tremendous junior year who's back. And, you know, John Carrick has been playing some linebacker that we're going to probably transition up to, to play some some roles like Moody Hurd played last year. And those kids have a great deal of experience. And, you know, we'll entrust on them. And a kid like Sean Caton who's played a lot to really bring some young kids along. Uh, last question, and then I'll let you go. But uh, you uh, joined our top 25 voter panel last season. And for those who don't know or for who need a refresher, basically our top 25 poll is eight coaches, eight SIDs, eight media, and then me, I'm the 25th voter. That's our panel. Uh, we don't generally publicize the names of the voters because we don't want you guys to be bombarded with emails and phone calls. And I don't even know if people still advocate for uh, for their teams anymore. But when I was a voter on another poll back in the day, I certainly got a lot of those. But I, I wanted to get your take on what it's like as a as a coach, especially uh, someone who's uh, you know been kind of isolated in a part of the country and not seen a whole lot of what else goes on around Division Three. What's it like filling out that ballot each week, and you know what you kind of gained from that experience last year? Well, it certainly was a new experience for me, and it was one I learned a great deal about as the year went on. But you know, I think it's tough for for all of us, you know. With, because you're, you are regionally isolated. Um, now, certainly playing a team like Claremont and, and, and watching Hampton Sydney go out and play Linfield two years ago, who's from our conference, you, you try to tap into some of those experiences or future experiences that, that will hopefully help you evaluate across the country. Because you don't, you don't see so many of these teams, and regionally you don't match up. Now, you know, being able to be in the playoffs last year and playing you know, uh, an Ohio team or – Kentucky team, you know, they're right on the border of Thomas Moore, you know, um, that, that's going to help with your experiences as a voter as well. But, you know, I, I think, I think you, you, you read, you read and learn as much as you can about the teams um, that are there that, that are being considered and uh, you do your best to, to, to put an educated vote out there that, that represents the, the best product that division three has. And uh, I'm very honored and, and proud to have been a voter last year. So yeah, some big ambitions or at least some big trips coming up for WNL here in the near future. And uh, like we talked about with uh, Coach Abel, a, a bit of an upgrade in the non-conference schedule as well. 
Yeah, I mean, that Johns Hopkins game, as as I know all too well uh, as an alum of Randolph-Macon, uh, that's a, you know, to have that early in your season, it can um, it can really, I don't know if demoralize your team is the right word, but it's a, it's a pretty good test. And I thought it was cool to hear both Mike Leonard and, uh, and Scott Abel say that they want their teams to go through some adversity in the non-conference schedule. They want to see how their teams respond to it because when they get to the conference games, you know, that's how they know what kind of team they have and, and, and what their team is capable of. Uh, Johns Hopkins will give that to them. And, and I thought, um, you know, picking up Claremont Mudscripts gives, gives WNL kind of two things. One, a pretty decent test early in the season. Uh, and then also, you know, having a, this season, they'll, the game will be uh, in Lexington. But next season, when they, when they take that trip um, out to California, it'll give them an experience of traveling, flying on the plane, doing all that, which is not common um, in D3, it used to be if you were in the UAA or the SCAC, but uh, but for everyone else, it, it wasn't. And, um, you know, you get, get to the playoffs, you get to the second week, WNL's looking to get past where they where they got to this year. You know, they may have to get on a plane and, and fly to a game and having that experience uh, doing that once uh, going out to Claremont Mudscripts may, uh, may help them. Uh, not this season, though, but next season. Well, and really, no matter how good Claremont is, um, and you know they've been kind of up and down, and the Skyhawk isn't one of the top tier conferences. At least it's better than playing uh, apprentice school again. Yeah, and you know you want to get D three opponents whenever you can. I thought Mike Leonard had his very valid reasons for playing Butler. Uh, it's a good test for them. It's close to home. It, it's you know you can bring the whole team, um, and he had a, a pretty consistent philosophy for that. But I think on the flip side, you know, you ask guys like Mike Drafts, who who for years had to schedule all, you know, take any game he could, uh, and then now is in a conference where you know ninety percent of that that schedule is already made. Um, I think teams definitely prefer the latter, and it, and when it comes down to uh, to playoff time, it's much better to have those those uh, D three opponents on the on the schedule than it is you know having having someone that doesn't count. And, you know, the other thing, um, you know, that that Scott mentioned, too, is that, you know, it gives us some fodder to work with as poll voters and uh, trying to figure out what what's a kind of middle mid-level, a pretty good team in Virginia. How would that compare to a pretty good team in California? Well, now we have some actual uh, data to go off of. Challenges at WNL, uh, Keith, obviously different than they are at Franklin, uh, different than they uh, will be when we talk with Lawrence here in a couple of minutes. But, uh, you know, recruiting to a, 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 a different type of school, a school that has a, maybe a more national recruiting base in terms of scope, but also a, a bit of a higher academic standard. That's what WNL is dealing with. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated to hear coaches talk about their different recruiting challenges. It's just, you know, it's something that we've hit on over time here on the podcast, how, you know, whatever Coast Guard is dealing with something completely different than Wisconsin Oshkosh, but we're all in the same division. Well, you know, in the WNL case, you hear you hear uh, Coach Abel say, "Hey, look, we're looking to find the right student athlete." And and if you're someone who didn't go to one of these really elite colleges, you almost kind of you hear that and you go, oh, "Are they are these being snooty?" But you really do have to on on their behalf. They have to find guys who are going to stay in the program. You know, who are who are. Um, they're going to be able to handle the rigors of the academics at the at the school, and also be a foundation of your program. You don't want to be cycling through guys, you know, after one or two seasons because um, you want to have a senior class of you know at least twenty players or you know, fifteen really solid guys to lead your freshmen as they come in and lead the juniors and seniors. And you you know you heard um, Mike Leonard talk about 
that attitude that that um, the upperclassmen have to have when the freshmen come in. You welcome them into the family. You don't look at them as potential competition for your job. And and if you cycle through guys too quickly, if you don't recruit the right athlete, you know, the student athlete profile for your university, and you know you, you have a great recruiting class, but you lose half of them, well then you can't build the, the, the kind of culture you want to build in your program. Now on the Around the Nation podcast, I'm joined by Rob McCarthy, the head coach at Lawrence, and Mark Speckman, Lawrence's offensive coordinator, uh, catching up with them at the Division Three Baseball World Series in Appleton, Wisconsin, just, I guess, literally just down the road from you guys, right? Um, I, have, I have to admit, all the times, I think I've been to this World Series now seven times, I actually have not been to Lawrence's campus, so I guess I have to apologize to you guys formally right now. Oh, not a problem. You make sure you swing by and look at the new field on your way out of town. Yeah, that's one of the things I definitely want to talk about. Uh, as, as you guys try to uh, kind of rebuild, retool, you know, kind of reimagine this program, uh, you know, that hasn't had a winning season since 1987. If I counted uh, last season, I counted maybe 41 kids on the roster. Um, you know, what are the things that you guys are trying to do? What, you know, the, the plan to try to change the whole culture of football, I assume, at Lawrence? Well, I mean, first off, it's exciting with the, with the, with our new president and making f- football you know, athletics a priority, and with the new football stadium, and then obviously recruiting is huge. You know, we've put together a great coaching staff that are all experienced veteran recruiters, and we've been out recruiting, you know, Wisconsin, the Midwest, and nationally. Yeah, um, and I know you caught our attention when you guys hired Mark, obviously, because we've known him since. Uh, I don't know how long when was <laughs> I don't even remember how long ago we met. It. I believe when the playoffs in uh, yeah when I was at Willamette. Yeah, so I obviously that's 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 got to be helpful for you guys too to just have name coaches who know how to recruit and can bring some kids in. Absolutely, and, and not to mention what they bring you know offensive you know offensively and defensively scheme wise. You know, yeah, I'm excited about the coaching staff we have in place, and obviously Mark and the fly offenses. You know, we're we're fortunate to have him. Um, the uh, numbers have always been an issue. I guess not always, but uh, you know, as a as a as a program struggles and at a you know a, an elite liberal arts college, sometimes it's hard to get that number of kids in. Um, what does it look like for you guys for next year in terms of incoming freshmen, and then maybe what the total roster might look like in August? Yeah, no, we hope to bring you know 25 to 30 kids in this year, and that'll put the roster somewhere between you know 50 and 60 kids. So we think it's definitely a step in the right direction. You guys, so like geographically, you guys expand the recruiting base as well, or you're just hitting the hitting your usual areas a little harder. Well, I think with the new coaching staff, we all brought in national pockets. You know, Mark with his West Coast experience, and then you know, so yeah, we've got pockets that we've all bring in, and we've been using those, continuing building those relationships, as well as you know, working hard here in the Fox Valley and throughout Wisconsin and in the Chicago area. Yeah, Mark, West Coast, Bay Area, Oregon, Washington? You know, pretty much the entire place, you know, to be honest. Just, you know, I've got a lot of contacts there. And so, you know, this, recruiting ultimately is a relationship business. And, and so, you know, was able to, to, you know, rekindle some relationships that I had. And, and uh, you know, it was interesting. Some kids want to go away. And so the, when you find a kid like that that can get into school, those are the guys you really want to focus on. So... Um, we have a very diverse group coming in, and you know Wisconsin and the sun, and the Midwest is you know ultimately going to be our you know you know bread and butter. But right now we're we're pretty far flung. 
Um, Rob, you mentioned getting a little more support for athletics. Uh, I assume that you probably mean that across the board, but um, tell me a little bit about how you guys have seen that so far with football. Well, to me, just the, the collaboration between, you know, academics and athletics at Lawrence is phenomenal. You know, obviously being here in Packer country, they love their football. Yep. And so we're excited about that. But, you know, we've, had, we've built great relationships with our admissions office and um, just throughout the campus. And that's, you know, that's important to us is we want, you know, we, we're part of the Lawrence community. Uh, I have to, uh, maybe this is coming out on this podcast. I have to be, I have to admit that I'm a choir geek. Uh, I sing in like five choirs. So I'm, I'm very aware of one of the things that, uh, that that's uh, prominent at Lawrence University. What are the other programs that are, uh, that are really top notch here? I think overall our academic rating is very, very high, you know, so we can boast that we're one of the top academic schools in the country and, you know, our sciences are very strong. And um, so yeah, we're you know, we're excited about the, the academic excellence that we have, as well as our music, as well as our athletics. Mark, you mentioned the fly offense, and you know we love the fly offense on this podcast. Um, you guys had two freshman quarterbacks last year. Uh, what does it look like for you know who's going to be running things this time around? Well, I think Ryan Butterfield kind of came out as a clear cut uh, starter for us, and uh, he's had a great spring and a great off season, and. Um, you know, I think it, uh, the last game of the season, I think he was a D3 freshman of the week. And, and um, so he's growing into into the role very nicely. And then we've got some recruits coming in that we're real excited about uh, to pressure, you know, to, put, to pressure him. And, you know, we have more pieces to the puzzle now than we had last year. It was interesting, you know, with, I'm not used to such a small roster and, yeah. and kind of felt it was in some ways a little karma for some of the, you know, teams. We had big teams at Willamette and playing some of those teams that weren't as, as, as big rosters. I kind of felt like, well, it's my turn now. But um, it's, um, you know, I, I, I'm real excited about where we're going with the offense and with the, with the coaching staff that we put together. And, um, you know, we're really, um, I think the future is bright. If I remember correctly, he ran for like 240 yards or something and threw for however many in that finale against Grinnell? Yeah, he threw for about 175 and, and ran for over 230 or something. It was the third best rushing total in the history of Lawrence football. And so he's, you know, again, his confidence and his knowledge, you know, everything will just be better. And I just think we'll have a few more weapons to help him um, not have to carry the entire load. But um you know, he's got tremendous physical attributes and um, a real bright kid, and he's all in, way into it. So it's fun, fun guy to coach. One of the things we traditionally talk about in, in the offseason and in the spring on these podcasts is what spring practice is like. And, you know, sometimes conferences have, you know, different uh, levels of what's allowed. And, and tell us a little bit about what spring practice is like in the Midwest Conference. Well, and for us, we're, we're fortunate that we're on trimesters, so it allows us to do it a little later than most schools. We're able to do it after our baseball and track, so we have a lot of two-sport guys, so we're excited that we can postpone spring ball until, A, the weather's nicer, and B, that they're all done. So, so yeah, you know, like, you know most D3s, there's no, no hitting, no, you know, so a lot more passing-oriented and drills and footworks and agility and, and conditioning, that type of thing. But you get, to, you get the full 15 practices? Um, no, we get 20 hours, and okay. so, so we get to, you know, we, we break that up. And so typically that probably ends up being more like, you know, about, you know, about more like 10 hours or excuse me, 10 practices as opposed to the 16. Yeah. So like a lot of things in the Midwest conference, a little more restrictive than the division three rules in general. It sounds like a little bit. Yeah. 
So what's a reasonable goal for Lawrence for this upcoming season coming off a year where I think you guys were one and nine and two and seven or two and eight the year before that, et cetera? You know, obviously we want to keep improving and, you know, obviously we'll be playing a number of freshmen, but, you know, so, you know, continue to, you know, winning is what we're here to do. And so we hope to improve on that number. As we bring Keith back in, uh, Keith, the challenges at Lawrence seemingly just keeping a football program on the field. Uh, you know, they've had so much uh, coaching turnover in the last couple of years. The numbers are dwindling, but they sound optimistic, at least, if nothing else. Well, yeah, and, you know, you guys both mentioned numbers, and the number that stands out to me was was uh, was having 41 on the roster and then them hoping to get 25 to 30 in recruiting so they can get into the 60s, and that would be a pretty good roster size for them. You heard uh, – Coach Abel from WNL say 83 was a great number for for WNL that it was you know one of their it'd be one of their biggest classes they've ever had and he was hoping to have 27 freshmen and then you look at how that number contrasts with with Franklin where you know they were hoping to have 20 uh, 136 come to training camp on uh, on August 13th and uh, you know he said that he had had 134 last season and through attrition only went down to 129 like that's success. Um, because, you know, you recruit these classes of 25 to 30 kids. You figure maybe by the time they're seniors, you hope to have 15 of them still in the program. Um, but those those are numbers that I formed in my head from covering really successful teams with big programs or, you know, even like just being at Randolph-Macon. I remember the classes were, were pretty big. And, you know, by the time we got to – I think we may have had, you know, high teens in the seniors. Well, Lawrence, you know, you're dealing with 41. You, you barely can feel the roster. Um, you know, you're hoping to get in the 60s. At least you have enough depth uh, on both sides of the ball where you can, you know, you can have a backup at every position plus special teamers. I mean, remember, uh, we talk every year during the playoffs when uh, the rosters go to 58. And, you know, at one point it was 52. And that was like the, 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 the least you could possibly operate with. You know, imagine trying to, to be successful with, with only 41. That's Keith's uh, radon detector or whatever. I'm sure it's just fine. Uh, I, you know, you hear that beep occasionally in the background of these podcasts. I, I wouldn't worry about it. Keith still seems to be able to breathe and keeps coming back, so that's good. <laughs> it's the it's the backup for the landline, which, by the way, I don't want. But that's another story for another podcast. Um, the, and it's the it's the battery, and I should replace it. But I went to the Verizon store; it was thirty nine dollars, and they said you can get it on Amazon for like thirteen dollars. And I just haven't ordered it. So that was our aside for the moment. When we get to the D3 Landline podcast, much more about that and, uh, and, uh, and, and much more. We're going to jump back in at this point and talk a little bit more with uh, Mark Speckman, the former Willamette head coach, now the Lawrence University offensive coordinator. Um, for those who don't know, you know, Coach Speckman was born without hands, and it's been a bit of a struggle for him uh, just to get a driver's license now in the state of Wisconsin after he moved uh, off of the West Coast. So I talked to him a little bit more about that when I chatted with him a couple of weeks ago. Well, you know, I've, I've had a driver's license in California and I had a driver's license in Oregon and then when I went back to California I got a license and even when I was in Quebec Canada you know I had I had a license and so I just went in and did what we did what the what the web page said you know my wife and I went in we got our you know a bill that we had to show our residents and we would been there a month and in Wisconsin you don't take a writing test you just show them your license and it's valid you get a license and it takes five minutes and Rob happened to be in there the same day that Sue and I went. So he went to the counter and got his license and Sue went and got hers. And then when I went, it was like they they didn't know what to do. And, you know, I mean, it was just 
it was so out of the ordinary for any of my experiences that I've ever had. You know, I mean, I was born without hands, so I'm pretty used to how people react to me. But this was over the top. And then to see it just every person on you went up the chain um, was just even more perplexed on what to do. And part of the problem is I have no restrictions on my license. I took my driver's test when I was 16 with a manual transmission. And so I, I, I don't have any restriction other than glasses. And so... I think they kept wanting me to have a restriction, and then they said, "Well, we have to test you." And I said, well, I don't, "I'm not coming back for a test. I don't shouldn't have to take a test." What you know? I, I just driven a 27 foot U-Haul across country with, with you know, pulling a car. I just drove through your town with like a giant truck. You know, I think I can. I bought a car. I had license. I mean, I have insurance. My insurance company found my record out in in no time, and so I said, well, "I'm going to take the test now." Well, I thought they were just going to test me. Uh, on the, and the, on the uh, web page it says they may test somebody with a physical disability, may. Mm -hmm. And so I figured, okay, they, I guess I got to prove I can, I can hold the wheel, I guess, or something. And I, I was going to go into a controlled skid or something. And um, But they tested me just like I'm 16 years old, and, and I didn't pass the test because I stopped on the line at a stop sign, and I didn't look over my shoulder for long enough. And But it's, uh, even on the form it said, you know, control the wheel. They passed me, and I just said, what is this? I, I shouldn't have to take this test. And so... I didn't get a license that day, so I went down to Oshkosh, and they told me a whole different story. Uh, I had to get a medical test and, and go to a doctor, and, I, and then I called Madison up and said, you know, the capital said, well, what's going, you know, I shouldn't have to do this, and this test has nothing. It has about oxygen and, you know, dementia, and it's not my issue. And uh, so then the next day I went to Green Bay, and it was even worse. I mean, just, they, you know, there's an institutional barrier that they're not going to give you a license, but nobody knew what to do. They told me I had to take an hour-and-a-half test. And so... Um, I just said, well, I'm going to keep my California license, and and uh, but you know, it's it, that's problematic. And I tried a lot of different organizations, ADA, um, different different people that you know, legislators, and nobody was really able to do much. And I found a, a lawyer who kind of specializes in discrimination suits, and he was more than happy to take this on. And so we're you know right now just in a, in a lawsuit to try to get the law changed, and uh, the people with a valid license should be able to walk in and get, you know, and it, it's not just me. I mean, I've, I've been contacted by tons of people who have had similar situations. And then, you know, with veterans coming back from wars, there's going to be people that have, you know, figured out, you know, gotten a license somewhere and moved to Wisconsin. They shouldn't have to jump through more hoops if they have a valid license. And so, I mean, I get it that it looks different, and I get it if I had, you know, didn't have a license and I was my first time or if I had, had an accident and now it's just my first time driving after the accident everybody would understand that but you know i've driven for 44 years without any any problems and so i was i was shocked that, that, you know, that this, in this day and age that, that wisconsin had a, a policy like that you know keith we have actually ragged on the wisconsin state legislature in this podcast before uh this isn't necessarily a uh, a lawmaking kind of thing but uh just a fascinating story and uh frankly unbelievable in following it on social media over the course of the last year or so and it just amazes me well yeah um i'm a little bit amazed by when when we ragged on the state legislator of wisconsin before in uh in the podcast but um, it, uh, um it's about uh it's about uh, it was about funding and travel and that sort of thing oh gotcha gotcha well look coach speckman has um always been a uh you know good to the to the site uh when he was out at willamette um Jason Niedermeyer wrote a book about him called Figure It Out, How I Learned to Live 
in a digital world without digits. Um, so if you can find that book, I don't know if it's still in print, but if you can I have find one, it, I have one here on my desk, actually. I have one as well. That's why I was able to plug it. Um, yeah, uh, you know, if you're interested in reading more about him, it's, but he's, um, you know, the cool thing about him too, is that like he, he, I guess embraces the, you know, his disability and the way people react to it, but he also is sort of so far beyond as far as like being an innovative coach, he's known uh, for the fly offense, he's had winning programs, um, you know, at multiple stops now. And, and here, it was kind of funny to hear him say, um, you know, that, that karma's kind of biting him back, you know, having the small roster at Lawrence because at Willamette, you know, he probably he, he beat up on teams that had small rosters. I'm guessing that was Lewis and Clark going through their tough time um, that he was referencing. But I also thought he had, you know, really, really wise things to say, as he always does. One of them, um, this is like a quote, you know, coaches can keep. Uh, recruiting is ultimately a relationship business. I think that's probably a, a good thing to file away. Uh, and, and you know, Mike Leonard and, uh, and and Scott Abel, a couple of real real sharper guys around D three. So I think it's actually a really good podcast, Pat. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. Um, I would like to remind people as we uh, kind of start to wrap this up um, that kickoff will be on sale. Uh, by the time that you see this podcast, you'll be able to order it. Uh, kickoff 2016 for early bird subscriptions. Anybody below before July 1st, uh, before, you know, that would be midnight Eastern time, the morning of July 1st, uh, can get it for the 2015 price uh, of $11 or uh, the .edu email address discount rate is $9. After that, uh, it'll go up to $12 and $10. So, you know, early bird uh, advantage there. For those of you who are listening to the podcast or, like Keith said, for those of you who don't tune out, uh, Division three football for the other seven months a year. Uh, you guys get a, a special bonus from us. We appreciate that. Uh, Keith mentioned we'll be ranking 249 teams. We'll be previewing 249 teams. And yeah, Keith and I will find some time in August to sit down and rank all 249 of those teams from top to bottom. I presume from Mount Union or maybe Linfield, I don't know, all the way down to Probably Maranatha Baptist, I would guess, would be my uh, initial team to pencil into that 249 slot. That's a that's still an interesting and I think still a fun exercise. It's still fun for you. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, we've streamlined it over the years. You know, in the early years, I remember meeting with a spreadsheet on a screen in the USA Today building, and we maybe like broke it up over two days. Fall we got to we got days. to 120. I think we would take a break. You know, we'd come back the uh, the next day. We've really learned. We've learned to. Um, uh, you know how, how to make the how to make it go a little faster. How to incorporate the, um, you know the Massey ratings and the the preseason prognostications, and then still take what our kickoff writers write and take what we've observed over the years and kind of massage it so that we have a one to two thirty nine. And now the cool thing is we've been doing it long enough where you can watch your team how it's gone from the you know some years in the two hundreds, some years up to fifty, or you know in the case of Mount Union, some years one, some years two. You know it, you have like a graph of, of how you, how your team has done over time. Well, we didn't particularly streamline this podcast. It's a little longer than the last one, but that was Around the Nation podcast number 149, released June 13th, 2016. Thanks for listening and tune in for the rest of our coverage throughout the offseason. If you like our podcast, please consider rating it, whether it's in iTunes or your particular podcast provider of choice. That will help other football fans find it. And thanks for following Division Three Football on D3Football.com.